Welcome to the Empire Builders Podcast, teaching business owners the not-so-secret techniques that took famous businesses from mom-and-pop to major brands. Stephen Semple is a marketing consultant, story collector, and storyteller. I'm Stephen's sidekick and business partner, Dave Young. Before we get into today's episode, a word from our sponsor, which is, well, it's us. But we're highlighting ads we've written and produced for our clients. So here's one of those. My name is Travis Crawford. And after a few years in the heating, cooling, and plumbing business, I've noticed something we have in common with doctors and dentists. People looking for, let's call it, free medical advice. I'll be at a party or something at a friend's house, over by the nachos or the beer cooler, and someone will slide up and introduce themselves. We'll talk about the game for a minute, then all casual will always say, so I've got a question about my heat pump. If it's the host, I'll probably end up poking around his attic explaining how everything works. If it's someone else... 90% of the time, we end up booking a visit. What I've learned is most people haven't had anyone take the time to explain how things work, what can go wrong, and what we can do to make things better. After a few minutes chatting over a drink and those nachos, I usually end up with a new friend and sometimes a new customer. I think a lot of people just want someone to listen to their problem first and whip out the stethoscope later. I'm Travis Crawford, and I think that makes a difference. Travis Crawford, HVAC.com. Gosh, Stephen, you, you shared the, the, the topic with me here on, on the Empire Builders podcast, and, and you've got me kind of stumped. Oh, by the way, you're listening to the Empire Builders podcast. I forgot, <laughs> I forgot to say that, but that's okay. <laughs> Leave this in. This is, <laughs> this is reality. <laughs> this is reality. This is how this actually works. It's just like, no, Dave got stumped. So it's not that I haven't heard of today's topic, but it's not what I thought when you you said that today's topic is the Marlboro man it's not Marlboro cigarettes it's not the tobacco industry it's the Marlboro man the man yes the man awesome so so basically we're talking about advertising and marketing yes it's core. <laughs> core yes we are because the Marlboro man was not just uh, there's no historical figure I don't believe well there is a guy who played the Marlboro man right we'll talk a little bit about him but no, Let's it's, hear it. it's it's really more about the advertisement. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do tell. Well, you know, the thing that's really interesting about the whole character of the Marlboro Man, it was created by Leo Burnett Agency in Chicago, and the campaign ran from 1954 to 1999. And it turned a struggling brand into a market leader by the 1960s. Like, Marlboro became the most successful cigarette brand in the world. And by the late 1960s, it had, you know, 25% market share. And by 1970, it was selling $20 billion worldwide. Like that's Amazing. a big, big number. To me, the story is, what were they doing before the Marlboro Man that wasn't working? Well, and that's the thing, because historically speaking, the Marlboro Man was one of the most successful advertising campaigns of all time. And it's often cited as a great example of how advertising can also shape cultural values and perceptions. Like it's amazing how Marlboro Man hasn't been around since 1999. And yet we can say to people Marlboro Man and we can all recall those ads. Especially uh, before, I forget what year, 77, 78, whenever they outlawed uh, cigarette advertising on TV and radio. Yeah, because then it was the billboard campaigns. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it's widely considered one of the most successful campaigns of all time. But what also people don't realize, it was not an overnight success. This campaign almost got pulled. Okay. In 1955, one year after launch, it was almost canceled due to poor sales. One year into this campaign, they're going, you know, this is working. Maybe we should do something different. Hmm. The other thing that's interesting is that this campaign was actually a major repositioning of the product. Okay. Marlboro started off as a female-centric brand. You're asking what they did before the Marlboro Man? Yeah. They marketed Marlboros to women. So talk okay. about that pivot. They went from marketing it to women to marketing it to men. In 1924, when Marlboro was launched, it was originally marketed as a brand for women. The filter tip design was popular with women, and the tagline was mild as May. Mild as May. And it included lines like ivory tips to protect the lips. Okay. And there was one famous ad from the early 1950s, which featured a woman in a pink dress holding a cigarette, gazing wistfully out the window, and the tagline read, come to where the flavor is, come to Marlboro County. Marlboro County. Marlboro County. County. Started off as Marlboro County rather than Marlboro Country. So the print ad showed glamorous women smoking Marlboros. And the challenge was that in the 1950s, the number of women smoking started to decline, but the number of men smoking was rising in terms of smoking cigarettes. So it's this shift in consumer trend that made them want to reposition Marlboro as a man's cigarette. So the idea for the Marlboro Man campaign is generally attributed to Leo Burnett, the founder of the advertising agency, Leo Burnett Worldwide. And according to legend, Burnett came up with the idea for the campaign while he was on a business trip to Richmond, Virginia, where he saw a group of cowboys herding cattle along the side of the road. And he was struck by the image of these rugged, self-reliant men. And he saw an opportunity to use this image to reposition the Marlboro Mm. brand. You use a, an iconic touch point in, in traditions and history of, of Americana in the West. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And attach that to the brand. And Burnett believed that the Marlboro brand could be transformed from a brand associated with women into a brand associated with men if it was marketed as a cigarette for rugged, independent men. And he saw the cowboy as the perfect embodiment of this. So he began to develop the Marlboro Man campaign around this concept. And the campaign was based upon an emotional appeal. Rugged, individual, yeah. tough, cowboy. Who doesn't want to be a cowboy? You know, the, the, the beauty of making a shift like this in the 1950s is none of the new target audience has probably ever seen one of these ads of the lady in the dress that was probably in what, Good Housekeeping or you know, a women's magazine. So you, you start shifting and, you, you know, today it would be all over Twitter. Oh, they're trying to sell, uh, you know, this lady cigarette to these macho guys. Well, case in point, look what's happening with Bud right now. Well, I was thinking Bud Light, yeah. <laughs> in terms of the, like, terms of like the repositioning the first, they're trying to do right now. The first ads for Marlboro were not a, a, a cowboy in a dress. That's not how you, <laughs> that's not how you shift into this. <laughs> And I don't know, but that also may be part of the reason why the first year it was not successful. When you do a repositioning where you're moving something from one market to another market, success does not happen right away. It is, mm-hmm. it is slower. 
and it takes time. And as I said, this campaign, one of the most iconic and most successful of all time, was almost pulled. Leo Burnett fought hard to get a second year for this campaign. Like, okay. like they really wanted to pull it. And he was like, no, guys, stick with this. Now, the original Marlboro Man, what's interesting, this guy by the name of Robert Norris, and he was a real-life cowboy. Like, they actually went and they found a real-life cowboy. But guess what he was not? He was not a smoker. He had never smoked a cigarette in his <laughs> life. And he remained a non-smoker, and he was a vocal non-smoker advocate because he actually, unfortunately, died from lung cancer. But he oh, wow. was a real live cowboy, Robert Norris. So that's interesting. I don't know whether he was a real live cowboy. He has a whole lot to do with the success because he would just he he matched that image. Was was did they play that up that they actually found a guy and then they parade him around as part of the whole deal? I don't believe that they played it up, but the research I did do on it, Leo Burnett was very big on there had to be, you know, it's kind of funny. In one hand, he was very big on authenticity. Like for people to buy this, it has to be real. And he felt that there was this right. subtle thing that happened. So he wanted to find a real life cowboy. Now, on the other hand, he was okay with the fact that the person was a non-smoker. So, you know, it's like on one hand, it's got to be yeah. authentic. But on the other hand, really doesn't need to be. As long as he's holding a cigarette, we don't care. Right. But I think there's this subtle thing that he felt that people would connect better if it was a real live cowboy. Sure. And look, today in the world, that becomes even more important because when things are not authentic, like, I mean, it gets found mm -hmm. out and it gets spread out all over the world. Yeah. You know, I, I also am just curious. And I don't know if you, if you have any details on this, but, but in the year that it took to get going, I know traditionally in, in the tobacco industry, man, they do a whole, at least they did until, until they got their hands tied a little bit, but they used to do a whole lot of things like samples and um, venue types of things, like, like getting people to experience it, right? It's the, the traditional, uh, almost the traditional drug dealer uh, kind of business model. Hey, the first one's free, right? Here's a, here's a little sample pack kind of thing. And you go to you go to rodeos and you go to events and you 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 just pass out little packs. Um, do you know if that was a part of this? Because that that can accelerate the experience of people with the brand. Yeah, you know, I don't know about that. I hadn't come across anything on that, and I had not dug into that. But the part that I found that was the most interesting when I was researching this was the fact that Marlboro started off as a woman's brand. And then they yeah. did this very successful pivot. And in fact, the one thing I did notice is when you look at the earlier ads versus the later ads, over time, the ads became more and more rugged. Yeah. Right. This whole idea of Marlboro and the tagline Marlboro country, you know, welcome to Marlboro country. But over time, they leaned more and more into this rugged individual, tough, imagery you start trying to tie your brand to affinity groups that identify the same way right so right. of course you're going to be sponsoring professional rodeos and and uh, you're going to sponsor motorsports and and all the things that guys are into you're going to be there right yes. you're going to have your name and your brand on all of that stuff and i would i would say that takes a little while to to gear up yes right there's a lot of moving pieces there 
Yes, and you, and you also remember this was happening in the '60s and '70s and things like that, yeah. where where these things were much more segregated than they are today, right? Yeah, it's almost a Red Bull play. Yes, right. You're just tying your brand to adventure, to and in this case, to rugged individualism, cowboy life, he-man kind of stuff. It's that whole self-identification. You know, I identify as being a rug. I'm not a cowboy, but I'm my own rugged individual who's yeah, who's exactly. forging his own path and is tough and and reliable and all these mm-hmm. other things. And so therefore you identify and you end up smoking yeah. this cigarette that frankly used to be favored by women. Yeah, amazing story. I mean, you 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 can repoint a brand and and start identifying it with another group. If, if you're trying to breathe new life into it. Yeah. But so, it takes time. It takes time. And man, I think it'd be harder today than it was in the, in the 1950s. Stay tuned. We're going to wrap up this story and tell you how to apply this lesson to your business right after this. Nice one. Thanks. We should do this more often, man. I wish we could. And why can't we? It's my business. What about it? Thought everything was good. It was. Do I hear a but in there? Sales have started to flatten, and we're down over last year. Oh. Can't figure it out. Tried a bunch of stuff. Putting in more time doesn't seem to make a difference. Yikes. It's frustrating. Have you spoken to Steven? Who? The host. From the podcast we just interrupted? No. Why not? I thought you were trying stuff. I am, but what's Steven going to do? He'll work with you for free. You mean that starter session thing? Yep. I don't know. What do you have to lose? Not much, I guess. So, you gonna book one? Yeah, why not? Where do I do it again? I think you can do it right from this podcast. Cool, thanks. You bet. We really should do this more often. Golf more or interrupt this podcast? Over to you, Dave. Book your starter session on this podcast's website. Just visit theempirebuilderspodcast.com com and click on get started let's pick up our story where we left off and trust me you haven't missed a thing you brought up an interesting point that i hadn't considered there's a reasonable chance that men seeing the marlboro man ad for the first time may not have ever seen the mild as may ads focused at at women where today the reality is we would have been exposed to both mm-hmm Case in point is the Bud Light repositioning going on, right? Yeah, exactly. So if Marlboro or if let's let's say Bud Light, if they had um, found another affinity group in the 1950s and and decided to market to the trans community, the core audience of Marlboro might never even noticed. These affinity groups could maintain some separation, and it, often you just didn't know what other what, what people that didn't share all of your uh, activities we're doing for background let's share with people you know what the bud light thing is that's happening right now where that's exactly what's going on you know let's face it bud light when we think about bud light we think about it as being a bully alley beer that's drunk by Uh you know guys at nascar right and right now they ran a campaign and who knows where this campaign goes but where it was very much uh, targeted to you know alternative lifestyle and it was a very limited thing. They did a little promotional bit with a, I don't know, influencer. Trans, yeah, transgender in that influencer. Yeah. And uh, then the haters got a hold of that and decided that, well, this doesn't fit the brand image mm-hmm. because I'm part of the brand image and it doesn't fit me. Yes. Right? And so uh, it threatened their identity. Honestly, uh, you know, uh, most of these brands, uh, Marlboro back then, Bud Light now, it's like they're part of a giant mindless 
corporation and all they care about is the bottom line, right? So I don't think Anheuser-Busch InBev Global Corporation gives a rip either way. And this is what always creates the opportunity for someone to emerge and garner market share is by appealing to a community and providing that self-identification and being authentic. Like authenticity, Mm -hmm. you know, does count. But, you know, the Marlboro Man, I felt as a campaign, deserved some recognition just because, again, you think about how iconic it has been in our lexicon and our ideals and the success of the campaign. And it was all built, all built around this idea of of self-identification. And they were able to pivot a brand from it being a woman's cigarette to a man's rugged cigarette. And then continue to hold on to that. If they hadn't taken Leo Burnett's advice and stuck it out past the year mark, it might be a brand that we've just never heard of today. It, but they, uh, they identified their audience, they leaned hard on it, and they did it for the next 40 or 50 years. I mean, they're yes. still doing it. They just can't do it in some of the public ways that they used to be able to do it. And what we know is if they could, they would. It was you know tribute to Leo Burnett and the team at Marlboro, that they stuck with it through that one-year chickening out period because it's tough. Yeah, it is tough. tough. I think that's a good lesson for any of our listeners is you don't know what your chickening out period is, right? Depending on on, uh, a lot of factors, one of the most important being product purchase cycle. You could make the case that product purchase cycle of cigarettes is pretty darn short. It's very short. Right? You smoke a pack. I mean, I I remember uh, back in the day, my dad was a one pack a day guy. At the very minimum, he could switch at the end of a carton. Right. But but the thing that we forget is people people have a favored one that they're doing. So you've got to get them to leave what they're doing now to come to yours. And that's always hard. That's why I think sampling probably played a pretty big role. Because if you're, man, if you're spending money on a pack a day, and somebody offers you, hey, here's here's six free cigarettes. Are you going to take them? Yeah, probably. Heck yeah, right? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll take them. Maybe I'll just smoke them while I drive. Nobody will see me. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, you're probably. Is it a lady's cigarette? I'll smoke it while I drive. Yeah. Right? I'll, I'll pull out something else when, when I get to the office. I wouldn't be surprised if sampling was part of the campaign. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. But to lean hard on it and continue to identify with that audience, I think that's the that's the lesson here. And I've had clients where, man, a year in and they're, they they think the needle ought to be moving a lot quicker than it is, but they're in a business like like agricultural real estate, for example. It's like, that's a long, long product. But like some of those properties haven't changed hands in a lifetime. Right. Right. Roofing. You, you, nobody, you don't roof your house every year. You right. hope. So how long do you have to wait till you know that your, your new marketing plan is working? Sometimes you have to wait a long time. Yeah. So you think about it. 1954, they start the campaign. A year later, it's hardly working. They almost bail on it. And by the late 1960s, they've got 25% market share. And by 1970, $20 million worldwide. So what we also know is when these things start to work, they really work big. Yeah. And then then you really want to make sure you're you're sticking to the message. No kidding. No kidding. Absolutely. The campaign is working, not the individual ad. That's right. Absolutely. What a fun conversation, uh, even though it's about cigarettes. <laughs> there you go. Well, we've had a couple of others about cigarettes, so had to come yeah. had yeah. to cover this one. Marlboro man. 
Thanks, Stephen. All right. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Please share us. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and leave us a big, fat, juicy five-star rating and review. And if you have any questions about this or any other podcast episode, email to questions at the Empire Builders Podcast. 